So we're, um, uh, we're continuing on this subject of how do I deal with loneliness? How do I deal with loneliness? Let me, know, let me let, tell you where we're going. We're going to spend one more week on this. We're spending three weeks on this topic. How do I handle loneliness? Now you say, Jeff, why are you doing that? Well, I'll tell you in just a minute. You'll hear it in one of the stats I'm going to share with you. But then after that, in the three weeks leading up to Easter Sunday, we're going to have a short series called Apologetics 101. During the Easter season, as you know, uh, magazines like Time and Newsweek and other sources will come out with their stories for that week, uh, many of which will question the validity of uh, the resurrection, the trustworthiness of Scripture, etc. And we should always be refreshing our understanding of and our ability to give a reason for the hope that lies within us. And so we'll be doing some very simple studies in apologetics that will help you to be ready to have intelligent, engaging, spirit-empowered conversations with people. And the Easter season provides many opportunities for just that. So that will happen after next Sunday. So part two today of loneliness, how do we handle loneliness? Let me ask you a question. I don't know if you, if you know this or not, but an average, you as an average American, in one year will meet more people than an average American 100 years ago did in their lifetime. You meet more people in a year than they met 100 years ago in their lifetime. Last year, Cigna Insurance Company did a study on loneliness, a nationwide survey. And they surveyed over 20,000 uh, different individuals, and they were asking them to answer questions. And they were using an assessment tool called the UCLA Loneliness Scale. It's an assessment tool, but they gave this assessment out 20,000 people and gathered data on their experiences in life. And then they're scored a range from 20 to 80 on that scale. Everybody who answered the questions, you either came in at a very low number 20, you weren't lonely at all, or at a very high number 80, in which you were despairing of even living, okay? So they did this study, and what they found was this, that... The, the average score or the score that they kind of say, this is, this is where loneliness begins. This is where loneliness is taking off is if you score 43. The average score of those 20,000 people was a score of 44. A 44. Well, we could say that half of America, half of Americans are experiencing or impacted by loneliness in their lives. You know who scored the lowest? Oddly enough, people over 70. People over 70 scored the lowest on the loneliness scale. You know who scored the highest? Young adults. Young adults born in late 90s, early 2000s. They had an average score of 48 and higher, while those adults 72 and older had a score of 39 or lower. 
So according to the survey, 54% of respondents said that they sometimes or always feel that no one knows them very well. Even more, 56% reported sometimes or always feeling like the people they're surrounded with are not necessarily with them. Two-fifths reported a lack. Two-fifths reported a lack of meaningful relationships and companionship, saying they are isolated from others. And this has implications beyond just the emotional implications. This has physical implications for us. Loneliness and weak social connections are associated in, uh, with a reduction in lifespan similar to that caused by smoking 15 cigarettes a day. That kind of loneliness and the emotional and then the physical toll that takes shortens your lifespan. Has a tremendous impact. It's a greater risk than that which is even from obesity. Loneliness is a killer. It's a killer of the spirit, a killer of the heart, it's a killer physically. So what's, what's creating all this loneliness? Now, the right notes are in the uh, app today if you want to look and follow along on there. What's causing all this loneliness? Well, consider the passage we read from Genesis today. When Adam and Eve sinned, when they transgressed God's law, they went from a place of hardly anything reflecting what we have as self-consciousness. The Bible says that they were naked and unashamed, a very simple way of saying that their hearts were open and not tainted by anything that was fearful or anything that was threatening or anything that made them worried that they would not be accepted. But when sin entered that situation, those two who had been naked and unashamed, who had been in a pleasant and wonderful day-by-day fellowship with the Father, when they sinned, what began to happen? They experienced shame. They experienced shame. They, they covered themselves. Deep self-consciousness and shame. They covered themselves. They blamed one another. They blamed the serpent. They, they blamed God. They refused to take responsibility for their actions, for their own sinfulness. When Adam and Eve sinned and sin entered the world... Shame came with it. Now, I want you to know one other scripture, James. We didn't read this in the reading this morning, but I want you to look at it right now. James 4, 1 through 5. James 4, 1 through 5. Where does all this loneliness come from? James 4. What causes quarrels and fights among you? Now, understand, when we read the scripture it's going to sound very big picture. Murders and wars, and, but, but 
this same truth applies at a micro level to our relationships and what we experience. I want you to hear it that way. So he says, what causes quarrels? What causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and don't receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Let me insert, to manipulate others to your own ends. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? And therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the Scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit he's made to dwell in us? What's, what's being said here? You have passions, you have desires, even lust that you demand to be met. And so what do we do? We manipulate, abuse, and damage others. We damage others. We make use of them. We don't seek God for our true happiness. We don't desire deep intimacy with Him, and so we end up making an enemy of Him. Look closely at verse do you suppose it is to no purpose that the Scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? What, 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 what spirit? What spirit has he put within you? Don't, not Holy Spirit. That's not what he's talking about here. It's a small s. He's talking about your life. The God-breathed life that makes you a living soul. He created you. He fashioned you. He made you and He made Himself the fountain of your deepest and truest joy. And God's jealousy for our hearts is not negative like ours is. God's jealousy is something pure and something that's holy. It's good and holy because He owns us. He has a right to be jealous for our affections, our allegiance, and our loyalty. He has absolute right to that as our Creator. The ultimate source of loneliness in our world is because our restless, sinful hearts have made an enemy of the one whose heart is our true home. You say, yeah, but Jeff, I, I've, I've given my heart to Christ. I have given my heart to Christ, and I know that He's the real source of satisfaction for all my deepest needs. Yes, you have, and no, you don't. Yes, you have. Maybe most of you in here I know, you've accepted Christ, as your Savior and as your Lord, but do you know Him fully and completely as the fountain of all of your deepest needs? No, you don't. I don't. We are people in process. 
That's why Paul prays for us, that we might be able to comprehend with all the saints the height and breadth and length and width and the depths of the love of God, because we don't know them. We don't know them. Let me recap just quickly a couple of ideas from last week. It's important that you understand this foundation. So we have two very, very important and consequential needs. What are they? Security. Security. The knowledge that we are loved completely. That we are loved without question. That we can be truly known and be truly loved. What's the second thing we need? Significance. We need to know that our lives matter. That we make a difference. That we have an impact for good on someone else. That's just what we are wired for, to love and to be loved, to have meaning and purpose, but we have a problem. And that problem is that what was once our capacity has become our need. Adam and Eve were created with unlimited capacity to love and to be loved. They were, they were created with unlimited capacity to know meaning and purpose in life. What did sin do? Sin corrupted that. It corrupted them. It turned them in on themselves. And they found they were even isolated from themselves. There was brokenness. There was shame. And so our capacity has been greatly, greatly diminished. And here's the problem. Rather than security and significance being something that we have a great capacity for and we give that to others, our brokenness turns that capacity into a need that others must satisfy. We're driven to meet that need. Think of the commands of Scripture. Think of these. Love one another. Accept one another. Be devoted to one another. Serve one another. Pursue unity with one another. Forgive one another repeatedly. Bear with one another. Speak truth to one another. Honor one another. How's our success rate? How are we batting? Listen, even if we are spirit-filled, Christ-pursuing people, we fall short, often far short, of living 100% of our relationships in this way. We do. We know we do. Wisdom and experience tell us that while we provide glimpses for one another into the fullness of God's love. And we do. We provide glimpses of that. But while we provide those glimpses, we cannot be the deepest and truest expression of that reality. As I said last week, ultimately we are not enough for each other. We all experience moments when we feel insecurity growing 
when we feel like we're being taken for granted, and when we give others reasons to feel insecure or to feel insignificant. What happens? What happens when we are missing security, when we're missing significance? Well, then we feel disconnected. Where's all this loneliness coming from? Here you go. We feel disconnected. We may feel rejected. We may feel forgotten or insignificant or adrift. The common experience for all of us is loneliness at some time and to some degree. And that loneliness can be temporary, right, if reconnection happens, right? Apologies are made, forgiveness is extended, connection is restored between people. We come to the table, we know we've blown it, God reminds us that we're loved, that we're forgiven, we reconnect, we experience and trust His love and His forgiveness, and, and so that loneliness, that feeling of disconnectedness dissipates, right? So it can be temporary, or that loneliness can grow. We can get stuck in it. And we have to remember that loneliness is experienced over a spectrum of experience that require different approaches to, to growth and wholeness. Let me just briefly give you these four areas. Number one is what we would call situational loneliness. Situational loneliness, changes in personal relationships, changes of environment, changes in health, a death occurs, a divorce happens, a move takes uh, a family away from all of their friends and acquaintances and across the country to some other uh, place. Uh, uh, a son or a daughter gets deployed overseas and, and into a, uh, a risky place and we experience loneliness or disconnectedness or longing. Why? Because the situation has changed. And so we're experiencing that disconnect. Being in ill health, being homebound can create that. Many different kinds of situations. And, and these are situations uh, that can be addressed. They require honesty on our part. We need to be honest with others about what we're experiencing, what we need. We need to reach out. We need, to get, we need to be giving out, not just focused inward. And often we may need some counseling to help us work through and deal with the sense of disconnect that we're feeling. The other kind of loneliness is where we start to get stuck in bad ways. That's emotional loneliness, rooted in problems with relationships. The basis form of this we said last week was unrealistic expectations. There's got to be the perfect friend, got to be the perfect spouse, got to be the perfect relationship somewhere out there. We got to find it. Perfect church, got to be something out there with people who will meet the needs that I have emotionally. And what do we end up with? Constant experiences of disappointment that always leave us searching and feeling like we're coming up short. And so we can, we can begin to experience a deeper emotional loneliness. This is where we can begin to get stuck. It turns into chronic. That's the third type, chronic 
loneliness. And chronic loneliness, we said, is ex expressed by two different types of cycles. On, on the one cycle, we, we become excessively dependent upon others, right? We, we just live a life of neediness, and we, and we use up people. We use up their availability. We use up their goodwill. We use up their emotional you know, ability to give to it. We just use it up, wring them out, and then they run for the hills, and we wonder why. Because we become so dependent, we put such demands upon relationships. But the other side of that is not excessive dependency, but what we would say call angry, anger, and alienation. Sometimes the sadness doesn't lead to self-hatred, it leads to hatred of others. And this is the kind of loneliness that if we get stuck, that that grows, if we stay in that place we get ourselves in some very great, great troubles. We don't come across as needy. We come across as harsh and critical of others. We're looking for people to blame. And maybe for a moment we feel superior from our critical perch, only to find that we're driving everyone around us away. And our response to that can be to lash out to hurt someone, to hurt ourselves. This is where suicide begins to enter into the equation for some people. The fourth kind of loneliness is what we would call God's crucible of spiritual development. We'll talk about that next week. Let me now just, let me try just to bring some key ideas here together quickly for you, all right? building on what we've talked about last week and today some. So here's some key ideas. And, and again, I am admittedly ripping off the book, The Marriage Builder, some, released sometime around 1970-something, has been probably one of the most profound and powerful books on marriage that I've ever read, but applying those principles here to all of our relationships, all right? So here's key ideas. Number one. We have deep personal needs, right, for security and significance that cannot be met outside of both vertical and horizontal relationships with God and with other people. Number two, we jump on the hamster wheel. You know that hamster when he's just running on that wheel? Doesn't go anywhere, just works so hard, stays in the same place. We jump on the hamster wheel when we begin to respond to our real needs in these ways, we either ignore their existence, we ignore the reality of our needs, of our personal needs. And so what we do is that we, we still have to find expression, so we look for that satisfaction of personal needs through physical substitutes. It may be sex, it may be uh, pornography, it may be uh, some substance abuse, it may be uh, just stewing in one's own anger and, and, and feeling and feasting, as it were, on the anger that we feel. We can look to other people and we don't love them. We, we use them or we use things to help us with pleasure or some physical satisfaction deny what we truly need. So we can ignore those needs. Or we can settle. We can settle. We can settle for counterfeit 
personal satisfaction. How? Well, we can do that through achievement. We can do that through our work. We can do it through uh, possessions, gaining possessions, seeking uh, recognition, gaining affluence, those types of things. We can settle. Those things may give us a sense of temporary satisfaction or even happiness, but they never provide the deep, deep joy and meaning and security and significance that God offers to us. Or we can exploit others. We can exploit others for security and significance. And the result, let me quote here, the result is a manipulative relationship designed to use each other for personal satisfactions. And because no marital partner, no friend, no pastor, no co-worker, no, no sibling, no parent, no child, because they're not able to adequately meet another person's needs, such an exploitive relationship inevitably experiences conflict and frustration. This is why half of our marriages break up. Said it last week, it needs to be said again. This is so important. And you need to know this for your, some of you for yourself, some of you because you, you know someone, you're thinking of someone right now that needs help. Why do we end up so many marriages in divorce? Why? Because one partner comes in looking for security, the other partner comes in looking for significance. Why do women end up in affairs more often than not? Why? Because they're looking for an experience of intimacy and security. They're being told that they're loved, that they're special, that they're precious, and, they, and they're listened to, etc. My husband ignores me. He doesn't care what I do. Oh, what a rat that guy is. Let me, I tell me about it. I want to know what's going on in your heart and in your life. And this false image of security begins to rise on that horizon. Why do men end up in affairs so often? Why? Because they're looking for significance. They're looking for power. They're looking to be admired. They're looking to be loved. They're looking to be wanted. My wife doesn't pay any attention to me anymore. She doesn't seem to be interested in our relationship anymore. My friend doesn't seem to care about, et cetera, right? And what happens to us? We, we go looking for the same things we always need. We either ignore it, we settle for something else, we exploit the other person or exploit other people, and we just live lives of conflict. Number three, only Christ. Are you with me? Is this, is this helping anybody? No? Okay. I'm only getting a few nods. That concerns me. Okay. Um, so, number three, only Christ can meet our needs. Only Christ. He alone can provide us with eternal security and legitimate significance. We are always loved by Him. We always matter to Him. He is always pleased to accept our sacrifices. He is always pleased with our offerings of our love, our good works, our praise, anything, our giving. He is pleased with it when we bring it to Him, when we offer it from our hearts. He's blessed. He's pleased with it. Always. He is always 
Why? Because all of these things are what? Accessible to God. The scripture says what? Through Christ Jesus. Through the righteousness that he provides for us. If you're not playing around, if you're not pretending, you're not being hypocritical, if you're sincere, no matter how wobbly and weak and, and incomplete you may feel in what you do, God is loving it. Because it's coming through the righteousness of Christ. Number four, it's difficult. It's difficult for us to grasp deeply the reality of our worth in Christ. It really is. This is, one of the, this is one of the, some of the fallout from sin. It's difficult for us to truly get a hold of this, to believe it, to become subjectively and convincingly aware of our security and our significance. You know this is a battle. I know this is a battle. We, we, we live every day feeling the draw of looking other places, don't we? Tell me. I'm secure. Tell me I'm significant. And God is saying, no, it's right here in this relationship. If you go looking for it outside this place, you're not going to find it. And we struggle with this. And so what do we have to do? Two things, and then I'll stop and we'll talk more about this next week. Two things. Number one is that, that we have to trust His love enough to give ourselves fully to our relationships in an effort to minister to their needs and choose to continue our efforts to minister regardless of how others respond to us. See, we have to be willing to risk loving and serving and giving and not quitting, not backing out, not allowing anyone's response to control our hearts, but we, trusting Christ, keep bringing our hearts to our friends, our spouse, co-workers, loved ones, etc. And then secondly, we need to honestly, we have to honestly explore the impact that we make on each other's experience of self-acceptance and worthwhile people. What do I mean by that? I'll, I'll, I'll tell you what it means. Ask your friend how your friendship helps them. Ask your spouse, do I give you a window that helps you look into the love of God? Do I give you a glimpse of the security of God's love for you? Do I give you a glimpse by my recognition and my appreciation and my, my honoring of you? Do I give you a glimpse into what your significance truly looks like? Because if, if you take my little window, take, honey, take my little bit of love here and take my little bit of recognition of you, multiply it a million times. That's how God feels about you. I'm a, I'm a poor representation of it, but, but with all my heart, I want to be for you a window. I want to help you. See, the fact is, folks, that God holds us responsible to give to one another a subjective experience, a subjective reality of how loved we are and how significant we are. That's why we bear with, forgive, honor, love. That's why we do those things. 
Consider. Someone read this scripture at uh, Mike's mom's funeral yesterday. Yeah, I think you did, Mike. Uh, right? Consider others. What does it say, Mike? Consider others what? As more important than yourself. Just live this way. Live like you consider others more important. Live as if that person's security and that person's significance are more important than your own. You live that way, you'll have no end of that being poured back into your life. And even in the times when it doesn't, you're not going to get thrown off, you're not going to get sidetracked, you're not going to get knocked down. Why? Because you know where the source of your truest security and significance is. This is what allows us to risk loving each other. By this shall all men know that you're my disciples, in that you have love one for another. So, what does that look like? It's just a nice idea, right? What does it look like? Because we fearlessly and without reservation, without excuse, without holding back, keep forgiving, keep honoring, keep loving, keep accepting. We keep at it. We keep giving out that love. It doesn't matter if you diminish me. It doesn't matter if you try to make me feel insecure. It doesn't matter if, you get, if you're angry at me for no reason, apparently. It doesn't matter to me if you decide that you just got to get away from me a little while. It's not going to throw me off. Because this is who I want to be. I want to be the one that gives flesh and bone to the idea that they will know we are Christians by our love. They don't know you're Christians because you have dinner with each other. They don't know you're Christians because you meet together in small groups. Lots of people do that. Lots of clubs. Lots of bars have better fellowship, more fun than you have in your small group sometimes. Hello? What tells the world that we're different? Because we're people like the Messiah who stretch our arms out on the cross. And you can nail us there all day long. But if we stay tapped into who our source truly is, who our fountain truly is, then we can keep saying without fail, forgive her, Father. Forgive him, Father, because they know not what they do. That, that sets us apart.